1: Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for its clarity. I thank you that it speaks to the condition of every Christian in every age. To your church in every age. And I thank you that it speaks with such power, that it is dynamic. I pray that you would give me grace today as I expound these things to your people and help apply them in this dying generation. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to begin today by asking the ladies a rhetorical, and I do stress rhetorical, question. Have you ever had a prospective male suitor, ladies, who perhaps seemed to overpromise just a bit? It came to what he would do for you and the love that he would supply to you. Enraptured by your beauty and grace as he was, awash with emotion, perhaps he guaranteed to be the moon and the stars to you and promised that each passing day with him would only prove to have been better than the previous day, that he would love you eternally. But maybe eternal love seemed a little bit of a lofty goal for this fellow, considering that, say, the last ten girls that he made this offer to turned him down, and then he seemed to move on and rebound from that pretty fast. Maybe he also couldn't hold down a consistent job, so that, too, cast doubts upon his ability to focus on, like anything, for a significant period of time, much less a whole other human being for a lifetime and so you very wisely told him that while you were flattered, you were also not interested? A romantic love is where we take note of that kind of overpromising most. But I assure you, it's just as common in Christian churches. One Christian author once wrote this this is my loose paraphrase. He said, Some men say, I'll die for Jesus when they won't even live for him. Indeed, Well, ladies, as your male suitor became, as is common to our sex, stupid in the sight of you and unable to speak properly, much less think properly, and thus way oversold himself, so similarly these religious grand talkers are enamored with grand thoughts of being what they are not and what they do not understand, and accomplishing things for Christ the consequences of which they have not begun to truly consider." As romance is easy, but relationships are hard, so too grand talk in the Christian faith is easy while carrying your cross is not. Now, I want to make clear at the outset that this sermon is not intended to be a a wet blanket that would douse anybody's enthusiasm. If you would be a world shaker for Christ, I would only encourage you along those lines. But this is intended to show you What world-shaking along those lines will actually cost you as a soldier in a spiritual war? History has had a lot of glory-seekers on various different battlefields who thoughtlessly charged the front lines only to, in the end, have their entrails hung from the city gates as they become a byword to others in a cautionary tale, a prop for enemy propagandists. Well, our enemy is Satan, And when that sort of thing happens to you, well, bearing the name of Christ, because you started building the tower but never actually considered the cost ahead of time, you bring shame upon the Lord Jesus. So if you want to take scalps from the devil, good, very good. Again, I only encourage you to do that. But if that is your position, then today is for you to listen and to learn of what that means and to understand what it is that you're really asking for. And specific results, Christian to Christian, do vary, obviously, based upon your context and your situation. What you will suffer as a result of that differs. I can't tell you exactly what's going to befall you for a life wholly consecrated to Christ, but here is an example of the sort of thing you might expect and a contingency that you ought to at least consider before it happens upon you and you are unprepared for it. And this occurs in Acts 12 verses 1 through 5. I will read uh, the entirety of our text first, and then I will return to it to exegete and apply. I want you to also note ahead of time that the prayers of verse 5, as well as their outcome, are critical to what's happening in this chapter. I'm not going to address them, though, in this time, because they are not germane to James and his situation but I'm not neglecting those, I haven't forgotten about them. We will pick up with that next week and stress that then. So Acts 12, verse 1. Now about that time, this again is a time of profound sweeping revival amongst the Gentiles in Antioch, Herod the king laid his hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded To arrest Peter also, now it was during the days of unleavened bread, when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being fervently made by the church to God. Now the first issue of exegesis that I think needs to be settled here is, who is this Herod? because this is one of many Herods in the New Testament. We don't want to be confusing them. Well, this is Herod Agrippa first, But recognizing that Luke has chosen purposefully to simply call him Herod and why is essential to our understanding because technically Herod is a name, but effectively in the way that it's being used it's more of a political title. And that is so because Herod uh, is intended to be uh, seen by us through Luke, as a member of a dynastic tradition and one that is acting in accordance with that tradition. Had Luke intended for us to view Herod as more of an individual, he would have done here what he did with Herod's son in Acts 25 and 26. In those chapters, Paul stands before Herod Agrippa II, but he is referred to there only as Agrippa. And the reason I think for this is because Agrippa II is behaving in a manner somewhat consistent with independent thought an independent personality and so inconsistent with the rest of the Herods. Herod Agrippa II is rational, he's thoughtful, he's listening. He's attempting apparently to do something maybe close to righteous adjudication. You may remember that at the end of this account he turns to Festus and he says, if this guy hadn't appealed to Caesar he might have been all right. But the son of our Herod breaks the family mold, by being a generally reasonable man. And no general reasonability is a low bar. It's way above the standard set by the rest of the Herods. Luke, actually near the beginning of his gospel in Luke 3, names the grand patriarch of the Herodian dynasty, the oh so humbly named Herod the Great. And Herod the Great was a man of renowned wickedness. Murdered his own father, murdered one of his wives, murdered that same wife's mother, murdered three of his own sons, one of them just days before his own death. And one of these sons that he murdered went by the name of Aristobulus. And Aristobulus was the father of Herod Agrippa I, as he occurs in our text, and that's just family. Outside of this, the founder and namesake of the Herodian dynasty was known for ordering the execution of a number of Jewish leaders coinciding with his own death because he knew it was going to happen soon. And why did he do this? He did this because he was so universally loathed that he knew that when he died, no one would mourn him, so he murdered people who would be mourned just so that someone would be mourning at the time of his passing. That's the kind of human being that he was. But most notably, Herod the Great followed in the footsteps of Pharaoh in the time of Moses in that he murdered all the little Jewish boys in order to attempt to avoid a coming Messiah. That was a futile attempt and yet monstrous. And that account, of course, is found in Matthew's Gospel. This is the light that Luke wants you to see, Herod Agrippa I, in, thus he is referred to as Herod. He is obviously cut from the same cloth, though his path to power was different, as I will explain a bit to you about now. Herod Agrippa I was a childhood friend of Emperor Tiberius's grandson Claudius. But eventually Agrippa I said something insulting about Tiberius and the emperor had him thrown in prison back in Rome. But then Tiberius dies and Gaius, also known as Caligula, if that rings a bell to you, assumes the throne in AD 37 and frees him and appoints him as the new king of Jerusalem and the surrounding territories. And then finally his old friend Claudius took his turn as emperor because Gaius was assassinated. And he gave Agrippa the first even more territory. So the, the, by the time of Acts 12, he is the most powerful Herod since Herod the Great. However, ostensibly, few politicians of his day understood better that holding on to power in Rome or Roman territory was hard. Everybody's got enemies, Herod was certainly no exception. He had evidently accumulated significant debt from powerful individuals back in Rome and just never paid it. So uh, becoming a king in Jerusalem was also a great opportunity to run away to Jerusalem from his debts. Also, no matter who you are, Roman politics were volatile. Emperors came and, and went. Sometimes they were assassinated. Sometimes you could be in their good graces and then shortly thereafter, not so much. Or vice versa, maybe one day you're in prison and the next day you're a king, as was the case with Herod. But the more that you can do in this kind of a volatile political circumstance to make yourself indispensable and irreplaceable, the better. So, in order to accomplish this, you curry favor with this political interest group or that political interest group, and you certainly endear yourself as much as possible to the people that you govern. Because if the people love you, then those who hold power over you are going to think twice about removing you from power. Now, our society has taken a hard turn towards nihilism. Rome, at this point, hadn't. They were pragmatic, and so what they wanted was taxes, okay? They wanted tribute, and you know what messes up that whole process of receiving taxes from your people? Uprisings, so they don't want that. So because Herod understands all of this, he wants to please the Sanhedrin, which still represents the largest and most powerful demographic in his territory, and for that reason, he has murdered James and imprisoned Peter. This is all about maintaining a happy citizenry in order to maintain power, and that is obvious from the text. Again, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them, and he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews He proceeded to arrest Peter also. Testing, testing. That's what that was all about. It was a canary in the coal mine. I do this thing. Does this gain me favor with the people? Oh, brother, it gains me favor with the people. Of course it did. Because going way back, the Jews had a big problem. The apostles had lessened their power significantly, and they were lessening it every passing day more and more. But the apostles were simply too influential to just kill because of the now immense size of the Christian church. And if they incited a riot by murdering them, then Rome would oust them and install a more stable proxy government in the form of new members of the Sanhedrin, and they knew this. Okay? There's a reason why uh, at the advent of high priests under uh, Moses, that they were lifetime appointments, and by the time of Christ, they're not. It was because of the influence of outside political forces, and this being Rome. And so they were very aware that this would happen to them if there was a revolt. You can go back to chapter 5 later and review on your own if you want to see an example of this tension. If you recall there, though, briefly, after an angel-led Prison break, the guards brought the apostles back without violence, according to the text, because they were afraid of getting stoned to death by the people. But the people cannot stone Herod for hurting the apostles. They can't stone him for killing them. And the Jews, they can claim that they aren't directly responsible because it was Herod who did it. So they have all the benefits now of a dead apostle without the possibility of a revolt against them that would lead Rome to replace them. So Herod has absolutely locked down the approval of his primary voting demographic, so to speak. But all of this only speaks to the human agendas in this martyrdom of James. There is also the Satanic. And while Satan's interests always coincide with his children's actions, they are not the same. Herod and the Sanhedrin care about the retention of their power above all. Satan doesn't care about that. Or if he does care about that, he only does so because they serve his interests so well. But Satan has many children, many more waiting in the wings. and He loves none of them. Jesus has his bride. Jesus loves his bride. He is faithful to us. We are faithful to him. We are his covenant people, beloved of God. And so when a Christian like James dies, here is his perspective on the matter. Psalm 116, verse 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. Preached at so many Christian funerals for very good reason. But Satan, as a counterfeit Christ, only has whores, and he treats them as such. This is a transactional relationship. These individuals, these groups, they are notches on his nightstand and when he is through with them, he will leave them with disease and nothing more. Disease of the mind and of the soul and of the body and then finally they will be cast into eternal hell. And you should know this and understand this if you're outside of Christ. I understand that in this life now, Satan is the purveyor of those sins that entice and stimulate you. Now you have fellowship through him with others who serve him in the same way that Herod did with the Sanhedrin and the Sanhedrin with Herod, and you lock arms. But a time is coming when he will discard your diseased soul in the same way that he soon will with Herod. Look ahead to verses 21 through 23. On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them, the people kept crying out, The voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. Now is Satan weeping, do you think? Because Herod, his faithful servant, and this ignominious demise being eaten by worms. No. No. Satan's first interaction with the human race, with a member of it, ended with the murder of the whole human race. The spiritual genocide of humanity and the actual genocide of humanity. So again, no to the idea that Satan cares about the Jews keeping their power for their own sakes. No, to the idea that he cares about Herod keeping his power for his own sake. So why this escalation now from the perspective of the devil? Why all of a sudden murder an apostle after all this time? Pentecost occurred more than a decade ago. They have taken from him tremendous ground. And never until now did he murder an apostle. So why? Well, there are multiple reasons. And I will give them you now, at least some of them. First off, this is war. And in war, escalation on one side begets escalation on the other. This is why you don't bring a knife to a fist fight unless you're intending on using it. When one side increases the level of force and aggresses, the other side needs to ratchet up as well. Otherwise, without equal resistance, the aggressor will have no reason to second-guess a full attack and they will overrun their more passive Opponent. And this effect is very well observed in spiritual warfare. For example, have you ever taken three steps back and just considered more broadly the uh, level of satanic activity in the Gospels post the coronation of Christ at the baptism of John in light of the Old Testament? I mean, if there's like a chart or a graph and a line on it, you go through the Old Testament and it's pretty well status quo, and then you hit a 90 degree angle. It goes through the roof, and it's not that you can't see demons and satanic activity in the Old Covenant. You see examples of it very clearly, Satan inciting David to take the census. You can see uh, demonic activity in the book of Daniel, but nothing like what happens after Jesus begins his ministry. Why? Because the king came, and hell knew it, and quite literally all hell broke loose. To oppose him with all the force they could muster because they recognized that they were fighting a different kind of a battle now, much more intense. Uh, With this revival in Antioch, God has violated, so to speak, this unspoken agreement of Jews for Yahweh and pagans for Satan. And so can the devil respond proportionately? No, no. God is infinite in power. Again, uh, God is the boot and he is the ant in this relationship. But he's going to give everything that he has now because he's got no reason for holding back. In terms of borders and kinds of warfare, God has left him with nothing inviolable. And I would to be clear here, the devil is never to be understood as a rogue actor, unfettered and free. In the dynamic between we and he, he is represented as a roaring lion, and you ought to remember that and not uh, assume that you have greater ability to withstand him, that you do are to, for example, flee from youthful lusts, not to stand there and fight in that scenario, but in the dynamic between he and God. He is simply a dog on a leash. God will let it out as far as he wants, and when he doesn't want, he won't. And Peter, who's in our text, well knows this, because of that time when the Lord Jesus said, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. Who did he pray to? The Father. Who is being asked in this scenario by Satan as to whether or not he can destroy Peter? The Father. The same way that that occurred with Job. But in this event, he said no. But two things can be true at the same time. God has increased Satan's reach for his own glory and on account of God's escalation, Satan now has nothing to lose. If there were fear of divine reprisal, those fears are gone now because categorically there's nothing left for God to take because he just took it all. Shiloh just took his scepter, put it right in the center of the nations. Individual souls are still at play and certain revivals are still at play, but categorically God has taken the world. So again, escalation begets escalation. The second reason, though, for this escalation is that Satan and his children are true believers. They are committed. And one of the reasons why the political right in our day constantly loses and is going to continue to despite their renewed promises is because pragmatism never beats real religious zeal. Rallies are easy. Promises of undying love are as easy for politicians as they are for self-deluded would-be gentlemen suitors. But Satan isn't just going to hold rallies. He isn't just going to make political promises. He will murder you and everyone like you as often as he possibly can. And by the standards of this world, you're going to die ugly. So if you have some Joan of Arc Hollywood representation in your mind of what just occurred with James, you know, the camera pans away, From the really gruesome scene and it maybe goes to his hand and he's holding on to some christian emblem and it loosens slowly all of that in slow motion none of that's real james got struck down like a dog that's the way this works and when the dying starts that's what you're going to see so if your commitment to righteousness doesn't match satan's commitment to evil you don't have a chance. And again, you will become a byword and a cautionary tale. You may sing, take me to Beulah land, but if you push against the devil hard enough, what you really believe about what comes after death is going to become very clear. On God's side, there are those like James, willing to die. There are also a whole lot of phony, false professors drunk on their own hubris. Whereas on Satan's side, There are none not willing to kill. None not willing to murder. Because they may not really believe gender theory. They may not really believe modern monetary theory or critical race theory. But they're absolutely committed to God killing. Mm. They believe that with everything that they are. And they will devote everything that they have to it. That has been true in the first century and every century since then. And a third reason for this escalation is that Satan hates Christ above all. But praise be to God, because Christ is above all, he can no longer strike the shepherd, so all of his ire is focused upon we his sheep. Now, prior to the pastorate, I would not have said or thought that I was ignorant of the true nature of spiritual warfare. But in hindsight, I largely was. If you're a member here, because of the elder-led congregational nature of the government in this church, you know about some of these attacks. Believe me, you only know, though, of a relatively small percentage of them. A fraction, really. They are incessant. Well, I've never been a devil-behind-every-bush kind of Christian. I've always thought that that sort of thing stunts a person's maturation because you're ascribing to demons what are often the result of your own faults and your own failings, and I still think this to a large degree. But Satan is real, and he really does hate us. And he stress us. We here now. And being small in comparison to other churches, to my surprise, does not actually dissuade him from allocating significant demonic resources to destroying us. And the extent to which this is true has been driven home for me since becoming a pastor. One of the things that really has shocked me is the consistency and ferocity of the attacks against us, considering the size of this church. I guess I just figured that given that Satan was not ubiquitous, not omnipresent, he would determine that the time and the time of his demons would be better spent elsewhere. But then in considering this more deeply, it did occur to me that this position sort of demeans the work of God in this place, doesn't it? Ice is a small church, but it's not been a small work of God. A very large percentage of the adult members in this congregation now present were converted through this church's ministry. And this is a brag on God and God alone. But according to my count, the number is seven. And this has occurred in the last six years of ministry as well as the two years prior to that of Bible studies that eventually formed this church. More than half of these adult converts have spouses And they have children who are now faithfully under the consistent influence of the gospel, which will endure in these families for generations. Each of these converts is a new branch on God's family tree, yielding fruit until Christ returns. And should the Lord tarry, these branches may, in the final analysis, yield thousands or tens of thousands of souls. But this is to say nothing of the sanctification of the saints who came here from other churches. So in assuming a lesser degree of satanic attack because of our size, I both, as it turns out, misapprehended God and the nature of his work and the nature of the devil as well. And I should have known that no church is too small for Satan to attempt to crush on account of many things, including this, Matthew thirteen three through 4 Jesus teaches in a parable, Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. What does this mean? Well, here's the interpretation. Verses 18 through 19. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one, Satan, comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. So why on the basis of that would I have ever thought that small churches wouldn't really be a focus for him? As you look out into your culture, you ought to understand that one of the things that Satan loves most is to snuff out life before it ever has the chance to gain any traction. This is abortion. He murders those children in the womb before they ever see the light of day. He has this same approach when it comes to spiritual life in its embryonic stages, too. Perhaps then Satan understands the parable of the mustard seed and that basic premise better than any of us. Small beginnings in the kingdom of Christ become major movements that dominate cultures and overtake civilizations. Abraham was one man in the wilderness and he became the father of many people. The eleven were frightened, they were disheveled, they were scattered, and they became indomitable as they were used by the Spirit of God and empowered by Christ. Satan has seen this. He has seen it played out many, many times, and so he does not take for granted that because you are few in number now, you will not become many. Again, Satan is real, and he really hates us, and he is actively and aggressively trying to destroy us because he rages against our Christ. Now to the fourth and final reason for this satanic escalation resulting in the martyrdom of James. And I really, really need you to hear this one. Fourth and final reason for this escalation is because this is an act of desperation on his part. You may say, that makes no sense. He's murdering Christ's sheep. Surely he is in control. Surely this is a demonstration of his dominance. No, that is precisely what he would like for you to believe, but indeed the exact opposite is true because the greatest victories in war are not best measured in killing they are best measured in keeping and this is true in all manners of war i read sun tzu's art of war a long time ago because it's required reading for business and i was in business and at one time going to take over the world even though that didn't happen but i read it in that context and one of the things that i remember is his emphasis upon resources So don't use more resources than you need in order to conquer people, and don't destroy their resources when you can take them and assimilate them. So don't bomb a city and reduce it to rubble if you can keep it. That way, when you take it over, you have everything that they have. Well, spiritual warfare works the same way, and by the way, it works the same way on both sides. God, for example, did not kill Saul He did not simply snuff out those resources. Rather, he converted him. He assimilated him. Likewise, before Satan drove Christ to his cross, what did he try to do to him? In Matthew chapter 4, he tried to convert him. Let me remind you of this. Matthew 4, 8 through 9, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Now, before we continue down this vein, let me be clear that I'm not trying to church up the nature of the devil, okay? He is a murderer, and he revels in the blood of the saints just as he did with the Savior before that third day when he figured out that wasn't really a great situation for him. What I'm saying to you, though, is that martyrdom is not his first and preferred option for Christians or Christian leaders. Apostasy is. And so what, then, is martyring James a tacit admission of? desperation and defeat he has been brought to the point where he has no other option because of the power of the spirit manifested the church when it comes to ideology and religion especially assimilation is true victory murder is what you do when you know you have lost and we see this everywhere in our culture the point is not for them to get you to believe all of the lies they don't believe the lies The point is successful, ideological, and religious colonization manifest in the conquered in this scenario from their perspective, hopefully you and I, as Bible-believing Christians, repeating what we know to be lies as evidence of the fact that we have been so conquered in our minds and our souls. James could not be conquered. He could not be corrupted. So he had to be killed. For those who have eyes to see, what we see in this is yet more incontrovertible evidence that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it, even if it comes down to the edge of a sword. This is the true lesson. Not that the devil got his due. The devil is due nothing but damnation, and he's going to get it good and hard before it's all through. He will get nothing in this world more than God agrees to give him. And in this scenario, that is James' body. It is definitely not his soul. It is not his testimony, and it is not the reputation of Christ. James does not fear him who has the power to kill the body because he fears him who has the power to kill both body and soul in hell, which is where Satan, king of the damned and damned liar that he is, is going to be forever. James, on the other hand, James is where no eye has seen, no ear has heard, because he is more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus who loved him. As you go through the book of Acts up to this point, you just see God winning. It's victory after victory after victory. And you may turn the page into the 12th chapter and you may think, oh, the tide has turned. Oh, no, it hasn't. God is still winning. And this is as clear a demonstration of that as you're ever going to get. Satan has tried and tried and tried. He has tried to use force. Peter's been arrested now for the third time, if you keep in count. That hasn't helped. He has issued threats. He has an imprisoned and murdered laity. Stephen is an example of this. I personally, as I told you when we went through Ananias and Sapphira, I think that is a master class from the devil. Putting the apostles in a position to have to weigh receiving money and doing the right thing. Peter doesn't skip a beat. Led by the Holy Spirit, they drag out their corpses. He has nothing left because nothing has worked now, Satan is fundamentally irrational because sin is fundamentally irrational and he is the father of that. But I don't believe that that, that means he, he can't think strategically in any way. I think he can. And it certainly doesn't change the fact or, or deny the reality that he's observed the consequences of martyrdom chiefly in Christ. He doesn't want this. God has won. And now James is with him and has gained the reward of Christ's victory on the cross for him. Well done, James, son of thunder. Enter into the joy of our Lord. Look, if all you can see is this world, you will not understand. You will think that Christ is losing and Satan is winning when very often it is reverse in both ways okay at the, at the beginning of the 20th century it seemed like christianity was on the rise when it was actually on the decline it was becoming ever more liberal when christians start dying it is a sign of multiple things at the same time one that satan has been granted that level of control over the culture that's true, by the Lord is a delegated authority, and two, that He knows from the lessons of many millennia that the people of God will rise from that. That those small beginnings will become major movements. Make sure you understand these things, Christian, and if you're not a Christian, make sure that you're not on the wrong side of this. This life is only a shadow. It's here today and it's gone. You will die. What will you die for? And what state will you be in when you do? Christ died for sinners. Turn to him. See in the Sanhedrin, see in Herod, your own nature and your own character. Because there isn't any of us here now who cannot see ourselves in the past in them. And yet Christ has saved us. Trust in him and his finished work, his perfect life, and the power of his resurrection, and he will save you. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the privilege that it is to bring your word to your people. And I pray, Lord, that if there are those here, and I know that there are, who do not know you, that they would turn to you even today, that they may receive your love and your mercy and not the fury of your wrath. We praise you and we thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.